actually the most important thing is the CEO. Is the CEO just delegating this to you or is the CEO really understanding that he or she has got to drive this? CPO is a critical role there. Without that CEO, it almost never succeeds. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. As part of our pursuit of all things PLG, we recently launched a survey about product data and analytics, which will form the State of Product Data Report. If you're interested in seeing which tools, data sources, and metrics other product people are using, please take part in our research and help create a cross-industry report. So hello, all of our, our fabulous listeners. I'm excited to be here today with the one and only Marty Kagan. Um, for any of you who are listening and don't know who Marty is, uh, I'll give you a quick background. Um, Marty is a Silicon Valley-based executive with over 20 years of experience building technology products, um, working with industry leaders like eBay, AOL, Netscape. Uh, for some of our listeners, they'll know what that is. For some of us, they won't, but you should look it up. Um, and then also Hewlett Packard. Uh, Marty is also the author of what is often considered the Bible for many uh, product managers, which is inspired how to create uh, products that tech products that the customers love. And that book in itself is really a formula for creating winning products. Um, and as I said, is on the desk of almost every product manager I know. But he also has recently launched a book with Chris Jones called Empowered Ordinary People, Extraordinary, Extraordinary Products. Um, both of those are fantastic reads and we encourage you to check them out if you have not. Uh, before founding what he is part of now, which is the Silicon Valley product group, um, which was founded to pursue his interest in helping others create great products uh, through both writing, speaking, advising, etc. Marty was the original leader of product and design for eBay, and he was responsible for defining, uh, defining products and services for the company's global e-com uh, trading site. So very excited to have you with us today, Marty. Um, we are going to talk through what I think is, well, I know from our listeners' perspective, a really hot topic, which is all around the um, interesting dynamic and relationships between CPOs and CEOs. And uh, I just want to start with saying thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tiana. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we were just excited that you had time to, to join us. Can you tell us where you're dialing in from? or zooming in from, I should say. Yeah, well, um, we've had a house in the mountains of Colorado for a while, uh, but during the pandemic, it has been the home base. It's naturally isolated. So I have been in the middle of nowhere, Colorado for the last year. <laughs> and how's that been for you? When you look back at that in a few years, are you gonna look at this as like the most blessed time or are you gonna be thinking about, gosh, you couldn't wait to get out of there? Well, in truth, I, I really miss the dynamic of sitting down with the teams in person that I work with and having dinners and just the, the sort of interactions you get. On the other hand, the book, the new book came out three months ahead of schedule because I had so much time to write. <laughs> so, so there are advantages. And I have also have to say, I have really, um, 
I'm able to meet with a lot more teams because there's no travel required. Yeah. Uh, and those teams are all over the globe. And I love that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head there that a lot of people have realized their time can go further in this uh, environment, but it doesn't mean that the time or the ROI on that time is always the same. And I think you're right that there is something for many of us about actually sitting in a room with another human being and being able to kind of work together that it's it's you can replicate it on Zoom, but it's difficult to actually replace. That's right. Well, that's cool. Um, do you think that the way that you engage and do your consulting uh, engagements in the future will become more balanced towards kind of being digital because of this experience? Or do you think you'll go back to the same ratio of in-person events? No, I think it's changed for good. Um, I, uh, I, I think it'll be a mix. Uh, I'm pretty sure it will be a mix. Uh, and I think that's nice because it really opened up more options. I mean, certainly the technology has got better at a pace it, faster than it would have otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I, if people like me are sort of the winners out of that, we get more choices. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. <clears throat> and I think you hit on something that I was speaking to somebody the other day um, and they really articulated it well, which was their point was if all you did from this was come away thinking that, oh, cool, people can work remotely. So let's just get rid of our office space. Um, you've really missed the whole narrative here because the narrative is that balance and giving choice to our employees on how they work uh, is really what has proven to be very popular in this whole thing. Yeah. And also, I think we've got a much deeper understanding of the different kinds of work and which things work better working remotely and which things really need that time face to face. So uh, the level of, I think the level of understanding of the dynamics of teams is much uh, more sophisticated today than it was a year ago. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so Marty, when we uh, were so lucky enough to have you join us, I gave you a little background on how the pod works, but you know, generally it's talking to both you know heads of product who are responsible for delivering the growth that product represents in a business, and then it's the founders who are you know crazy enough about a product um, or really uh, solving a problem that they built a whole business around it, and that's usually our two tracks of interviews that we have, right? Those two personas. But with you, it presented a really exciting opportunity because not only have you played the different roles, but then you've also been you know, paid to come in and consult um, on how to, you know, when you add to your roster, right? And there's all sorts of questions that we get from our community on when is the right time to bring in a CPO? You know, how do I bring in a CPO, uh, you know, correctly, depending on the stage of development that my company is at, all of those things. So, you know, that's what we're really excited to, to talk about today. But to frame it for our listeners, what I thought would be fun is to hear about your own leadership journey, right? Um, you know, starting off in the early days when baby Marty was just getting started and didn't know that he was going to be sitting here in Colorado, you know, talking to Tiama, like, what has that leadership journey been like for you? Um, and can you share a little bit of that with the listeners? Because I think it's an aspect that we would really value as a foundation uh, for the larger conversation. Yeah. Well, uh, it definitely started on a different path. I, the first 10 years of my career was as an engineer. 
So, and I, I loved writing software. That's what I went to school for. And I, I learned to program at seven years old, which for someone my age was really unusual. It's not unusual today, but I was way on the front end of that. Um, but I had uh, a father who, who was uh, actually the first in the US PhD in computer science. So it was like the perfect person to teach you how to program. And so Amazing. I... Um, you know, so that was just a, a, a lucky break is what it was. And so I love I, writing software. Can I ask you a question about that, Marty? Because it's such an interesting thing. I mean, how did that happen? Was it a push pull? Like, did your dad say to you, like, Marty, let's work on this together? Did Were you interested in learning what your dad was doing? Like, how did that even come to pass at seven? Oh, it was bizarre. My dad was actually educated as a physician, but he, he hated, he hated patients. That was the problem. And so he, um, he taught himself to program. And this was like, before I was born, um, he was one of the earliest of uh, developers. And anyway, the National Institute of Health in the US uh, said, we think computers will become important to medicine. Would you like it if we sent you back to school on a fellowship to learn computer science. And they sent him to the first program in the US that, that was generating PhDs in computer science. And so I was just a six, seven year old kid then. And, and he was spending all this time, you know, in literally a computer center basement, you know, and I, um, I mean, I was, I don't really remember all the details other than I, he never pushed me. I remember I wanted to learn like, I, I, I remember asking, could I go with them? And they had, you know, punch cards and teletype <laughs> machines. I mean, things that are only in museums today. But, but I said, you know, how do I do that? And he said, well, it's not that hard. If you want to learn, I'll show you. And he, he taught me basic, which was like yeah. the, the simplest language at the time. Uh, but I thought it was so cool to be able to, you know, control a computer. And it was something that none of my friends could do. And, um, you know, anyway, so I, I started programming and I really liked programming. And I also liked learning programming languages. So I became one of those, if there was a new language, I wanted to learn it. And um, so anyway, I, that was just a lucky break, obviously, because when I went to computer science education in college, I knew a lot of programming. I didn't know theory, but anyway, I, I joined a great place. Uh, HP Labs was considered one of the, the most consistently innovative companies in the world. And they had a whole program there for coaching and developing engineers into engineering leaders. Okay. And I was on that track, it was called the HP way. And it was really way ahead of its time. Uh, today, the, you know, a lot of those practices are done by Amazon, by Google, by great product companies around the world, but it was way ahead of their time. Uh, but I also, at that point in that journey, I realized that it wasn't just about programming. Because yeah. um, uh, I, I worked like a lot of people on products where um, you realize it's not good. It doesn't matter if your customers don't want it. And so I got very interested in like, well, who, I even remember the first time I asked, who decides we were supposed to build this product? Where does that come from? And it's like, I was certainly wasn't in the meeting and it's a bunch of executives, you know, in a smoke filled room kind of thing. They decide. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I want to learn how do they do that? 
And so I got interested in the product. I wasn't willing to let go of the engineering for several years. I tried to do both, which is not impossible, but I will say you don't get a lot of non-work time. Those are two <laughs> big jobs. So, uh, but I did learn a lot. And then eventually I moved into general management. Um, and so I was very interested in building product organizations as a whole, product design, engineering. And, um, and you know, I did the journey. I got very lucky because timing, you know, this is uh, the original internet company was Netscape. I worked for Mark Andreessen, the co-founder. He was brilliant. And I learned so much, not just from him, but there were a lot of amazing people like Ben Horowitz and and Debbie Meredith and Bob Lisbon and the, Jim Barksdale. There were all these amazingly, uh, a lot of the people that have gone on to be leaders of the industry. Absolutely, absolutely. And what, I mean, if you think back to, you're just coming out of your program, you're starting at HP Labs, like what would you say about the fact that you are where you are today? Does it look anything like where you thought you were going to go in this world? Do you know, I mean, did you, were you one of those rare unicorn children who come out of university and feel like, you know, where you want to go or, you know, like, were you just like, cool, I'm going to go work for a leading, a leading place for someone like me. Like. I didn't know anything. All I knew is I wanted to work on cool products and uh, I wanted to apply technology to solve problems. So I love the whole idea about being an engineer. Um, I would say though, the, the thing I got luckiest with is, uh, <laughs> I am almost embarrassed to say this because I was so naive, but <laughs> for the first 10 years of my career at HP, Every single day, I had at least one manager who was there to help me get better at my job. They, they viewed coaching as the number one responsibility of managers. And I thought that was just normal. Sometimes right. I even had more than one. You know, they were like, one was teaching me engineering leadership and one was teaching me product management. But I thought that was normal. It wasn't until I left HP and sort of joined more of the real world outside of that bubble that I realized, I, and I still meet people today that have been in their job for 10 years and have never had any coaching yeah. at all. And I'm oh, like, yeah. how in the world do you learn? I, well, obviously you don't. A lot of them, that's the problem. They don't yep. learn. Yep. So um, yeah, that, that, that's to me, one of the biggest crimes in our industry is that so many people have no help to learn how to do this well. And, and the root of that, of course, is so many people have never even seen it done well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think something that happens in all industries is you're good at one job and suddenly you're being put into a people management role because you were a good you know, dev. Suddenly you're going to be a good dev lead or you're going to be a good people manager. And you know, people just take uh, oftentimes for granted how much work leadership and coaching is, right? And the quantified ROI for it. So um, you are lucky and that's amazing. I can only imagine the get together for beers with the old uh, HP Labs crew and how you guys probably have all, you know, come back to the table and talked about the magic that happened there because that sounds like a really amazing experience. It was a great experience. Couldn't really ask for a better first, first job kind of thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's amazing. So takeaway number one uh, to people listening, try to find HP Labs equivalent today. <laughs> But but more but more simply, uh, talk to the potential employers about you know what is what's the dynamic that coaching plays in the culture of the company, right? Because uh, clearly, I agree with you. Having somebody who coaches you um, is amazing. Having a manager who sees you know development, talent development as being an imperative versus just output is great. But also finding some a company that has a understood and articulated appreciation for the value that coaching plays is a great a great tip i'm i'm sure yeah i actually recommend google for a lot of people for their first job because they have very similar culture it's very much about empowering your engineers empowering your teams and they have very they have some great managers and leaders that have been there done that and are really committed to coaching and so um, uh, it's a great place to learn the craft and then, especially if you want to go build something, uh, you can do it. You've got the uh, tools. Outside of your own literature, and of course, then, you know, suggesting certain companies like Google, any um, coaching Bibles or anything like that that you think uh, would be good content for either, you know, people who want to, they hear you saying this and they're like, I want to be, I want to consult. I want to be more coach oriented or people who want to learn um, how to ask to be coached, you know, anything that you would recommend? Well, I ended up writing the new book be largely because of that reason. In fact, the biggest section in the new book, uh, Empowered, is on coaching. Uh, because I meet so many people that tell me, okay, I'm willing to coach. I know it's most important, but I don't even know. <laughs> uh, you know, I, nobody coached me on this stuff. So can you at least give us talking points for each week? And so it's more than 100 pages of literally coaching topics is certainly, I think, as much as anybody really needs to give their people a good foundation. Um, there's also, a, there's lots of good books that make the argument for coaching and developing people. Um, the, there's uh, it's actually one that I just got announced um, that I haven't read yet from Adam Grant, but um, Oh, yeah. The one I just finished that was terrific was the one from Reed Hastings, No Rules, Rules from Netflix. So there are a lot of good books on this. There's another one that I'm halfway through, which is uh, called Working Backwards, talking more about Amazon's view on these things. All the good companies I found, though, they really all are talking about the same things. And uh, they just sort of have their flavor on it. Um, right. And, and it's good because you can see the difference between there's it's not an accident that Netflix and Amazon and Google are so successful and most companies are not. Yeah, absolutely. OK, good to know. I, the Adam Grant one I have on my list, uh, I think you're saying the, the power of knowing what you don't know. Is that the yes. one? Yeah. Yes. So I, that keeps being highly, highly recommended to me as well. So, um, OK, so it's. It's, you know, for us now, what your career trajectory has looked like, right? Started in the engineering field, started to ask questions about, well, how do we decide what we're building? Okay, this opens up a whole new world, right? And so then, has there ever been a time in your career where you've thought, ugh, this isn't it, like, I want to do something else, or I need to take a break, or, you know, have you ever felt that way? Or has it always been like, yeah, this is, you know, I'm excited, mo you know, you may not be. 10 out of town every day, but you know, generally you've been excited every day about what you're doing. 
Yeah, my problem was more that there were so many things I wanted to do. I didn't want to, you know, I was one of those that always wanted to learn. I wanted to learn design. I wanted to learn management. I wanted to learn, you know, I wanted to learn all these areas. And I often struggled with uh, my time, um, for sure, because you know, there's not enough time <laughs> to do everything yeah. you want to do. So um, uh, that was more my issue. I at Netscape, which wasn't was the most fun of all the jobs I've ever had. Netscape, they after four years, I think it was, or maybe it was five years, they gave us sabbaticals, which were six weeks to sort of recharge. Uh, and that was the first time I'd ever had like more than a one week vacation. <laughs> so, wow. uh, and so that was a lot of fun. And I had um, I never really took a breath. Uh, like that. In fact, I think that's when I decided I wanted to start writing some of the things I had learned was during that sabbatical. So I do think sabbaticals are great things uh, for sure. For yeah. People. Interesting. So it was on your sabbatical that you realized you wanted to kind of document, give back some of this learning. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Not surprising. I mean, the, I think that's one of the reasons why really good companies do have that kind of forced disconnect process because often what happens in that time when we step away is we return to creativity right and it allows us to kind of recharge our batteries so um yeah i always i always cite the motley fool because i think they've got a good plan i mean this is definitely american centric because most you know of the people in the country where i live would like turn up their nose if i said this but the motley fool had a a rule that you had to take two weeks off every year and it wasn't even just because they wanted you know marty kagan to go out and find out that he could be marty kagan and write best-selling books it was also like they wanted to make sure that you know somebody else knew how to do marty kagan's job right yeah. um in case yeah so I, I think there's a lot of benefits both for the the founders and entrepreneurs listening to us but also for the employees listening to us that um that time that time away from work is often i think just as important as the time at work for for stuff okay so let's dive into more of the meaty questions around cpo ceo all of that um, first, I'm going to ask is true or false, uh, do you agree that most CEOs um, and business executives, I guess I'll expand it to, have no idea why you would hire a CPO or what a CPO does? Well, as, as long as we separate, you know, there's people that are CEOs of tech powered companies and those that are not like if, if, if you're a CEO of a company that makes uh, perfume. Yeah. They probably have no idea what a CPO is. They understand marketing for sure. They understand packaging and all those things. But no, but in the tech powered world, probably 95% of them that I meet do know what a CPO is. Now, they might not have done the job. Some yep. of them have, but they know generally what it is. Um, their most senior product person, they usually. Uh, for tech-powered companies, they understand what engineers do, designers, product. They kind of understand these competencies. Yep, yep. I think it's true that, you know, the companies that are understanding of how technology is going to help them grow, regardless of whether it's in their mind, 
they're a tech company, as you often talk about or not, right? Um, technology is going to enable their growth. They're probably more familiar, but it seems like a lot of companies, and they don't even have to be in a perfume-related uh, you know, thing, but even I would argue that perfume, right, and Glossier and things like that, I mean, they've got, they've got an understanding of how a product, a chief product officer would benefit them. However, it seems like a lot of executives that I speak to don't really understand what a chief product officer does outside of that kind of tech uh, cohort. And yet that's a huge percentage of businesses out there today. Um, and it's, it surprises me, I have to say. Yeah, I think it's though what you're seeing is just a symptom. They don't understand the necessary role of technology. That is the thing that's going on. And when you don't, they view it as a cost center. Right. If you view it as a cost center, you're like, why do I need a CPO? We have a CIO. They build right. our features. We're fine. So, right. and there are many, many manifestations of that problem. So right. CPO is like, just one on a long list. Right. Uh, so that's the real issue. And uh, I see companies like that all the time. Uh, and they should, like you said, they should, they don't realize they're a tech powered company. They're trying, well, here we can pick any industry, but look at pretty much any car company around the world and totally. compare them to Tesla. Yeah. Tesla is a company, they make cars but they're a tech powered company. They know that yep. the rest of the industry, they make cars and they pay whatever they have to pay so that their stereo works or whatever. They don't really think of it as a way to constantly increase the value of this car. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, I think you've said it um, very, very succinctly, right? If you view technology as a cost, right? Um, versus a part of the R&D, uh, part of your budget, right? Um, and capitalize those expenses, then it's you're probably missing the role that technology is playing in your growth and could play in your substantial growth. That's right. I mean, in a, if you talk to Amazon, technology is not a cost. It powers the entire business. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. The, some of those businesses sell books, but that doesn't mean they're a retailer. They're, they're a tech-powered company that sells lots of things and does lots of things, but they understand the role of technology that's in their DNA. And this is really what it means for a company to transform. They have yeah. to, it means they're completely changing their view. Uh, you know, most companies in uh, uh, lots of parts of the world, uh, it's more outside of the US view, it is digital transformation. They have a, right. a chief digital officer, but they're, what they're trying to do is they realize they're missing something and yeah. they need to uh, get some of that magic that makes you worth so much more as a company. But what yeah. they don't usually realize is it's a big change and it yeah. needs to start from the top. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much content out there today around like, how do you become a SaaS company, right? How do you position your P&L as a SaaS business? Um, it would be interesting to look at what the P&Ls are of, you know, a tech oriented company, like you say, obviously SaaS is a part of that cohort um, versus, you know, the companies that see it as a cost center and, you know, what the, you know, valuation outcomes are of that, because I'm sure if nothing else, maybe that could be pr proof for the business case that you want to make to your, uh, to your executive team that you need to transform more than yeah. just having a, a chief digital officer, right? Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. The, the VC community knows this. 
So yeah. they know how to value these kinds of companies. And when yes. a company decides to either take in private equity or to do something, this is when they kind of realize their way, uh, you know, they're not treating this the way the market really wants them to treat this. Yeah, they're valuing it completely differently. Yeah. Okay. So I was talking to a CPO recently and he said to me something interesting and I wanted to get your thought on it. Um, so his point was he doesn't know if he would take the first CPO role at a company. Um, and I don't mean the first CPO role for him, like he's a CPO today, right? So he's got the experience, but what he meant was if he was joining a new company, uh, he doesn't know that he would want to be their first CPO because it can be so difficult. What are your thoughts on something like that? Oh, this is a very wise person <laughs> because what <laughs> he's realized, what he's realized is that if he's their first CPO, he is probably being brought on board in order to drive this transformation. And that's what it means, uh, almost certainly between the lines. And so now there are certain people I know that this is what they love. They literally love, just like there are some CEOs that are turnaround artists. Turnaround, yeah. There are some CPOs that are transformation artists. That's what they do. They love to transform. They don't want to join a company that already does this well. They want to like 10x the company's value by transforming them. And so uh, it just depends, but realize that's a very different assignment than we're already a tech powered company and we want you to lead us on some great new generation of products. Absolutely. Those are two very different jobs. And I think your friend just figured that out along the lines, uh, along the way there. Through hard, hard knock experience, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's good. So it's a good self-reflection question for our folks, right? Uh, if you're considering, because I mean, let's be real, to be the first CPO is a really exciting opportunity, as you say, for the right personality type. But are you, do you see yourself as a, you know, great transformation artist? Or does that actually make you uncomfortable for some reasons? Probably an important set of questions to work yourself through when considering uh, the first CPO gig. The one thing I get, I always say this to people who tell me they are they want to do this transformation, as I say, the most important thing is the CEO. You have to see, is the CEO just delegating this to you and saying you worry about it because that's almost certainly going to fail? Or is the CEO really understanding that he or she has got to drive this? And um, CPO is a critical role there, along with, by the way, the CTO. Those are the two that really are gonna make it happen or not. Yeah. Um, but without that CEO truly engaged, it almost never succeeds. Okay, good. So tip number, uh, technically, I guess that's tip number three, right? Tip number two is if you're considering a CPO gig and it's the first CPO role at the company, make sure that you're asking yourself if you're up for the transformation uh, game, because that's gonna be your, your job. And then secondly is, does the CEO see this as integral and are they your partner in this or are they delegating this to you as something you go do? Right. Got it, okay, excellent. So that changes my next question a little bit, um, but uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just alter it. A few years ago, you wrote a blog that just went like, I remember it went like viral uh, on what the most important question is to ask a product manager during an interview. And 
I won't tell people what that is. Just go look for that uh, Silicon Valley <laughs> product group blog if you want. Um, but I'm curious if you have an idea of what you think the most important question a CEO should ask a prospective CPO or vice versa. And I, what I guess I'll do is I'm going to amend it to include the CTO because I think what I'm hearing you say is if you're coming in as a prospective CPO, it's not just enough to know how the CEO regards you and your relationship, but it's also the CTO and how they regard your potential partnership. So what, what would you say if you had to, what would be the most important question to ask? Yeah, I have a lot of these conversations with CEOs. It's the right, so because there's many different situations here. Uh, the situation we were just talking about is let's say you're a CEO and you've just Amazon has just put the fear of God into you. They, you're worried that they're going to come after your business now. You thought you were fine, but now you're not. So now you're scared and your board is probably starting to wonder if you're even the right CEO. So you're like, okay, I, we need to transform. So now you're looking for a CPO and a CTO that know how to do that. So you're going to be supportive if you're really scared you're going to be supportive, but you don't know how to do it probably. So you're hiring the CPO and a CTO that have been there, done that on a transformation. Uh, and those people are awesome. Uh, I know quite a few of them, like I said, that people that love, they live for those transformations, but that's what you're interviewing for. It's like, tell me the time you did this last. Tell me, I want to know all the obstacles you encountered. I want to know how you dealt with them. So you're trying to be convinced that this person knows what they're talking about. Um, so that's sort of one scenario. Another scenario is, look, we built this company in this new model. We're an internet era, era company. We're already transformed. We now need, here the problem is we've grown like crazy. I was the founder. I was essentially the head of product and we've built a real business now, but now I have like no time. Mm -hmm. I can't do everything that's required. We went from 25 engineers to 200 engineers. Uh, I, I literally can't be in every room. I cannot, you know, be on every Zoom call. I, I need real help. Yep. Uh, so now the person is looking for a chief product officer who can uh, partner with that CEO. But this is where it gets a little interesting. Does that founder want to continue as the real sort of spiritual head of product? Right. Uh, in most examples that I meet when the founder was the one that built that original product, I try hard to convince them that they should do that. Um, now, of course, there's two issues here. One is, are they good at that? And the other is, do they want to do that? Right? Right. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they say, I want to, but they're really not good. Sometimes they don't want to, and I have to convince them they should. Um, one of the things that often helps is, you know, I, I totally relate to not having enough hours in a day. So a lot of times, you know, what they really need is a COO, Mm -hmm. that can cover the operational side so that they can stay heavily on the product side. Uh, Absolutely. Like, yeah, there's a lot of very successful founding teams and CEOs that are like that. Yeah, um, well, that, I mean, I think that's, so we have so many founders listening, so that's really good to think is, do you actually need the CPO? Or as you said, maybe you just need a COO to take off a lot of that work so that you can spend more time continuing in that kind of spiritual stewardship of the product. That's right. 
So, because this is important, and it's also, there's been a lot of CPOs that have been hired and were basically had to leave within a year because of this problem. What happens is the CEO really does want to continue really driving the vision, what's going on, but they hire a CPO that knows how to do that and wants to do that. And so now you get, you know, two cooks in the kitchen, right? And I've seen that many times. And what's really going on is, of course, no, no the, the founder's vision is the one you really need there. So you need a CPO that's much more of an operator, much more yeah. of somebody who can execute. Right. And, you, and you're little, really looking to complement that founder. And that yeah. works great um, until, by the way, the founder retires. Well, and hopefully there's some good. Uh, there, there, hopefully there's some good continuity planning uh, that's taking place right. in that organization. Yeah, often there isn't, and that's a different scenario. Now you have a situation where you have a product organization that knows how to execute someone else's vision, but they feel like, "Where's the vision?" Right. Yeah. So this is another common problem, but uh, this dynamic is what we're really talking about. We want to get a healthy dynamic. If that, yeah. if that founder, let's say, came from a sales background, they're really not interested in the product side, they're not interested in the vision, that's where they want a CPO that really is good at these kinds of things. Yeah, I remember, um, I can't remember where which of your writings it was, but basically your whole thing about, you know, your answer to a, a question of should I hire a CPO was, well, it kind of depends on your CEO, right? And exactly like you said, if they've got tremendous talent and the ability to have a vision and enhance that vision to continue adding value and retain and grow customers, like then that, you know, you may want to go down the path that you've mentioned, right? COO or, you know, more deputizing some of the execution of the stuff that's happening. Um, but one of the questions that our use our listeners have asked several times at previous PLA events is, is there actually a time where the CEO should become the CPO and they should bring in a new CEO to lead the business? And I'm curious, do you, you come across that often? Not often, but definitely it's a thing. Um, you know, there are people that found companies because they want to change the world. You know, you know, they want to make a dent and they absolutely love product. And then they find, I mean, this is such a common dinner conversation. They say, you know, I get like two hours a week to do that. I have to deal with the investors constantly. I have to worry, deal with finance constantly. I'm, I'm worried about office space. Should we get rid of our offices? I'm worried about uh, legal issues. I'm worried about, and they're like, I feel like I'm not doing anything that I love to do. Uh, I mean, I've had that conversation. <laughs> it's a real thing. I'm, and, I'm sure you have. <laughs> what do you say? I mean, uh, cause I could imagine that feeling precisely that way right so yeah. what what would you say to somebody well so the first my first answer to that is the coo um it's like if you were to find that partner and by the way a lot of founders they're co-founders and they already have that partner uh merging right but if they don't and they're in this situation i'm like if you were to find a coo that you could offload all of that stuff to 
you'll still have to give talks to investors and stuff, but that's not your issue. Your issue is that you've got two hours a week for what you really love to do and what you think is most important. And so that's the first answer. Uh, sometimes, of course, the board is what's really going on. The board is like, well, the problem is we want to take you public, but you don't have the credentials. And we really want to put a, quote, professional CEO up there, a marquee name, which, you know, you can almost hear the sarcasm in my voice. Um, I, I worry a lot about that. There's a lot of red flags there because a lot of times those uh, people... Um, ruin a company. They ruin a company. It's very hard to take over as CEO. One of the few times I actually saw it do, done well was Eric Schmidt at Google because Larry and Sergey were doing it, right? They were kind of yeah. covering the, the two roles and they ended up bringing in Eric Schmidt. And But there was something about him, I think, the fact that he was a longtime accomplished engineer or whatever, but there was something about him that made it work, uh, for, you know, for 10 years or so. It made it work that he kept the magic of Larry and Sergey, which was really the heart and soul of where so much of their good stuff came from. Uh, but he also helped the company grow and sort of put things in place that they needed to scale that beast. So uh, it's not impossible, but you know, they, they, that was a pretty special and unusual hire. The classic yeah. bring in the MBA does not usually have that happy ending. So I, I agree with you. I think that's probably very difficult to find somebody who can come in, but it's certainly a question that we get asked a lot. So I appreciate you, you answering it. Uh, one thing that I would be curious about, and you've kind of talked a little bit about what just happened with Google, but tell us a, a story about a great founder and CPO relationship, um, or alternatively, tell us a story, you know, of, of, of a relationship that maybe was a bit more fraught. But the reason I ask is I want our listeners to hear what can they learn from that, right? What is the, what is, you know, the data points that they can think of and kind of take back to their kitchen and implement in their own unique special recipe for success? Well, yeah, there's lots of good examples depending on, um, you know, th those use cases or those situations we talked about before. Probably interesting ones for a lot of your listeners are, um, you know, you've got a, somebody running the company that realizes they need help. So if they, if they don't think they need help, they're just going to continue it as they were. But if they realize they need help and they bring in somebody. So um, uh, you're in London, you said, Tiama? So I am in London, yes. There's uh, one of my favorite tech product companies now is Trainline. Do you know Trainline? You probably oh, yes. buy tickets I know, Trainline. Know it, know it well, yes. So a few years ago, Trainline was a classic old style, uh, you know, from from a long time ago, sell you train tickets on a kiosk or something. And um, uh, there was actually a private equity firm that realized that that should be a great company. It's, it is so much potential if they just started taking products seriously. And they brought in a CEO from eBay, actually. Uh, they brought in a CEO and that CEO brought in a head of product and a head of technology. 
And the three of them set about transforming Trainline into, you know, from classic IT, small, you know, tiny little sort of nominal engine, you know, it's hard, hard to even call it engineering, obsolete technology stack, all that stuff, introduced serious professional engineers, introduced real product design, introduced a data science team, introduced product management. And over a few years, they turned that place around completely. And in fact, last year, they were the UK's most successful IPO. And that dynamic, the head of product there is a longtime friend. Uh, he's, his name's Jonathan Moore, who, who's, uh, He's, I first met him many years ago when he was a early original, I don't know if it was original, but early, early product manager on uh, BBC News and BBC Sports, uh, which were major uh, properties at the time. Then he went on to, uh, to really do some great work at The Guardian and then um, had a product at um, Trainline. And the relationship, the CEO and the head of product had was such a, you know, healthy, dynamic, you know, there was so much work to go around, as you could imagine, when you're trying to transform an old company like that. But uh, between the three of them, and I can't ignore the, the head of technology had a massive job as well to take obsolete technology, build, you know, change the engine mid-flight, give them a whole mm -hmm. new foundation. Um, and just turned it into one of the best organizations I've seen. So yeah. that's that's what you're really looking for. And you know, the, to their credit, the, in you know the the private equity firm knew that that's what was going to be required. So they put the wheels in motion and they put the funding to for that to happen. But fundamentally, it happened because those three did what they needed to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember the KKR acquisition. And I mean, I guess the thing for for listeners to hear there is you don't have to have KKR come in to, you know, do a, a you know, a, a transformation journey. It's really about finding the magic between your co your 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 co-executives, right? And being aligned on the vision and clear about your mandates um, and then being able to work well together, I suppose. That's right. Yeah, so, so simple to say, <laughs> not so simple to do. Um, okay, well, we are coming up on, I'm sad to say, um, the end of our time together. And I have two questions I would love to ask you. Um, so the first is at this stage in your life, right? You've had a, I, I would say, a remarkable string of successes. And um, it was really nice hearing about your early life and both, you know, at seven years old and thanks to your dad for allowing you to learn how to, to code, but also, you know, lucking into and being smart enough to choose a great launch pad with HP Labs. Um, but if today you could do anything, right, um, take on any project, and I had a magic wand and I could wave away any barriers or constraints, um, what type of project would you want to tackle and why? Well, one of the things is a good question for sure, but one of the things I learned about myself over the years is that I get bored with any one project fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think once you've been done this long enough, you're like, okay, the interesting part is done. And so 
I, I crafted a life for myself where I'm an advisor to many companies. And I feel like that way I get to participate in the fun parts of many companies. Uh, and I, I have been, you know, it's like, I think I'm hitting 19 years in a couple months. It, it's remarkable. I've been able to do this uh, so long. Uh, and I, every year I'm like, God, I'd be thrilled if I could get one more year and before, you know, this disappears, but it's been, um, uh, <laughs> I'm able to do what I, I really love to do. I have five partners that are all the best in the world at what they do, former chief product officers. So they do the hard work with companies and I get to just, um, I get to write and I get to uh, advise. So honestly, I, I'm doing that. And, and I get to, you know, well, except for the pandemic, I get to travel to the teams I like <laughs> to travel to and stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm unusually lucky on, on that front. Well, you know, luck, luck uh, favors the prepared and the reflective. So, um, I mean, I guess you have a, a little bit of Netscape, Netscape to thank you for making you take that sabbatical so that you had enough space to reflect and realize how much you liked creating content and writing, at least in one part. Where else, I mean, where else do you think you found the time in your career, especially having you say that you had you always wanted to do it all, right? And if anything, it was a challenge of having the time to do it all. How did you find the space to reflect and realize, hey, I'm gonna intentionally create this career that um, really brings me the most satisfaction? Was it something that came to you fairly easily? Was it something that evolved over many years? Like how did, how did that come about? Well, no, I have a, a friend to credit for that. So after, after Netscape, I did, um, eBay, which was another wild ride and exhausting ride. But after <laughs> eBay, I'm like, okay, I'm definitely going to rest. And I, I was going to, well, I didn't call it a sabbatical, but my intention was to write the first book. Um, right. That took longer than I thought it would, of course, but, um, but I wanted to do that. And then uh, I had a longtime friend who really convinced me, you know, cause I was, I was having a lot of fun. I was just informally helping teams that were early at, early at Amazon, early at Google. And I was really loving that. And he said, you know, you can do that. You can like do that for your business. And uh, it was a totally different path than I was thinking because I'd always done product companies and this was mm -hmm. more of an advisory company. And so, um, uh, and, and he, he had done that himself and he said, you know, it'll take a few years, but you can do it. And he was right. And I, I thank him to this day. Absolutely. How did he, how did he know? I mean, had he built his own type of He had done advisory? the same. Yeah, he had done, his actually, his name was Bruce Williams and he, um, he had built this marketing advisory, marketing services kind of advisory company that provide marketing advice to a lot of the top companies in the industry. And uh, he had done that over I mean, the company is still going. He passed away, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, but he, his company's still going after like uh, something like 30 years, which is un very unusual in Silicon Valley. Yeah, amazing. Well, that is very fortuitous that he was your friend and that he uh, had that astute observation that maybe this is a path you could take. Okay, last question, Marty. Um, it's a little dorky, but we like this question because it helps us understand how people approach and think about really great products. So um, 
if there was a museum that was dedicated to the world's most successful products or most important products, even I'd say it doesn't, maybe, maybe it's important and it wasn't successful, but you still have a reason for putting it in there. What uh, products would you put on display and why? Yeah. Well, especially for a person that loves products like me, that's a hard question because uh -huh. <laughs> there are so many, uh, obviously there's, tons of crappy products, but there's a lot of great products out there. I mean, as far as what I put in that museum, uh, first of all, I think the Tesla Model 3 is sort of as the uh, ultimate version of their first 10 year vision um, for sort of accomplishing what many people thought was impossible. Mm -hmm. I, I probably thought it was <laughs> very unlikely at the beginning of their journey too. what they did was absolutely amazing. Um, I'd probably, you know, have to say the iPhone as far as connecting the world, it's hard not to. Yep. Um, and AWS, what Amazon's done with AWS, most people in the world don't realize how much of the internet is powered by AWS, mm -hmm. but uh, what they created was amazing. And, uh, and, and actually AWS is the product that's closest to my heart. I've, I grew up doing in, in the industry, doing platform products. So I really love what they've done. Uh, but I could keep going What Shopify has done with a platform is amazing. Maybe the one I should mention though, is a, uh, a warning to the world, not great product, but maybe terrible product in its impact on the world is probably Facebook. Um, ah. and so I view Facebook more as a warning to the world of what could happen when product is skilled, but not ethical. Absolutely. Uh, that is a, I appreciate you adding that because you're right. Oftentimes the people who come on here, they want to talk about the products that they think have contributed to something great. And we can learn just as much, if not even uh, more from things that have had unintended consequences. Um, so I appreciate that. And I think it's a wise, uh, wise set of products that you've shared with us, Marty. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, here's hoping that a year from now, you're at least getting to be out and traveling more, but that you're on what your 20th year of being able to do what you love and still pinching yourself a little bit, it sounds like. Yep. Okay. Thanks so much, Marty. Thank you, Tiana. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the product-led audience. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.